Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about reducing screen time in their home. This is Melanie Hempe, and today I am so excited about our guest. And I know I say that all the time. I know I get really excited over things, but I just have to explain this just for a second. Back when I was dealing with um, our conflict, I guess you could say, in our home with our oldest child, you know, most of y'all know that story. Um, I was desperate for information and for research on what was happening to my son. Couldn't find it anywhere. Um, you know, he came home from college after he dropped out because he played video games instead of going to class. And then we got him enrolled. I guess you enroll someone in the military. I guess that's what we did. He got recruited into the army and, and he left and went on to find his life. And my girlfriend and I found a conference one day that we decided we were going to go to because we were going to get to the bottom of screen addiction. And we were kind of afraid to say that word out loud because nobody knew we were talking about. And so this thing called video game addiction, um, we were kind of the first on our block to start talking about it. So we went to California and I met Doug Gentile, Dr. Doug Gentile. And we just hit it off. We, um, we, I, I think his talk was my favorite, of course. And so over the years, we have kept in touch, and I just want to explain, my, my good friend Doug um, was one of the key people that really helped me understand what was going on with my son. Now, Doug, you have to understand, is a very, very smart person. He um, has published over 136 research articles, and he has five, six, or seven books that he has in the middle, that he has written or in the middle of writing but Doug has a very unique quality of being able to articulate all of this vast knowledge and this research to just normal people like me. So I am so honored and so happy to call him my friend. And I wish y'all could meet him in person, but instead we're going to meet him right now. Doug, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Melanie. I'm, I'm going to take issue that I don't think you're just a normal person. Oh, <laughs> I know oh, a lot of. I mean, a lot of people at these types of conferences who are often you know, struggling with similar things to you, and very few of them actually follow up and and get involved and do things that help their communities. So I would say you're quite a remarkable person. Well, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. I didn't even tell you to say that, and you said that. That's so sweet. Thank you very much. <laughs> That'll be $10. $10. Okay. Well, I do have a lot of energy, as you know. Doug um, actually uh, came down and did a conference for us. So if you're on our website, screenstrong.com, you can look that up and have access to that um, medical conference that he was a part of. So I am just so grateful, Doug, for your work. And I want you to explain a little bit to this audience about your background and why you're so passionate. I know why I'm so passionate about it, but I need you to explain why you're so passionate and how you came into this issue of gaming addiction. Cause I believe in the beginning you were kind of on the other side of things. So explain that. Well, there's a lot of questions there. <laughs> uh, why I care is I'm a child psychologist. My whole focus is what is it that's healthy for kids? I got into you know, looking at media kind of in a very bizarre sideways way, which is I 
totally left the field and did market research for a while. And my favorite client when I was at the market research firm was the National Institute on Media and the Family. And the mission of maximizing the benefits and minimizing the harm of media on children and families through research, education, and advocacy. And once they got big enough to want to do their own research, they hired me away as their research director. And while I was there, then my whole focus was on doing research to answer the types of questions families have and, and translating it to kind of normal speak uh, out of the statistical language that psychologists usually like to use. And what got me passionate about it was in 2001, I had an article published that uh, looked at why the ratings on media products are so bad that parents don't use them, even though parents say they want <laughs> they want ratings. Yeah. And that study got hearings held in Congress. And I got invited to testify before Congress. And then I got uninvited. Uh, <laughs> <and that's okay. laughs> of course you did. <laughs> well, yeah, my goal wasn't to go to Washington. It was to get a debate started nationally about why are the ratings so bad parents don't use them. And and one study got that debate started. And that's when I realized what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, I, I am a good researcher. And my sweet spot is research that, is, that sits at the boundary of basic theoretical research that has real-world applications and public policy implications. Hmm. And that... You know, that's very motivating to me to, to be able to do research that you know, can affect real families and systems in a way that can improve the outcomes for kids. So there's the answer to why I care about this. As far as game addiction or gaming disorder, as it's now being or technically called, uh, I started studying it in 1999 when I was at the National Institute of Family. And... Why? Because even back in the 90s, parents were talking about their kids being addicted to games. And I thought, that can't be right. <laughs> uh, I thought all parents mean when they say that is my kid spends a lot of time playing games and I don't understand why it's so interesting. Uh, that's different from an addiction. Doing something a lot is not an addiction. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people drink a lot and yet they manage to hold down jobs and keep their relationships going and... You know, an addiction means you do something in such a way that it damages multiple areas of your life. It damages your social functioning, your occupational functioning, your school functioning, your emotional functioning, your social functioning, your family functioning, mm -hmm. uh, you know, your psychological functioning. And I thought, there is no way games are doing that. You know, that's when you call something an addiction is when it is dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And so I did my first study, I think, back in 99 to try to prove that gaming disorder was not a real thing. And yet, looked like the data suggested for some kids it was. And so then I did another study, and then I did another <laughs> study, and, and then I did a national study with Harris Polls. I actually got Harris Polls to collect data from me, this beautiful sample of uh, over a thousand kids nationally. Um, and the more I studied it, the more I could not disprove it. Wow. Uh, and that's how science is supposed to work, that you try actually to disprove things. And if you can't, then you start believing it's a real thing. 
Hmm. And that's what happened to me is that uh, that national study showed that uh, about 92% of kids play games. And of them, uh, about uh, 8.5% would classify as addicted by this more clinical definition of an addiction. And that's hmm. what convinced me this is a serious problem. It's not a problem that most kids have, but that doesn't make it an unimportant problem. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you've seen in the last... 10 years. I mean, because, you know, maybe it's not a problem that most kids have, but in the last 10 years with the smartphone and all these little screens in their pocket, and I mean, can you, what, what do you say to that? Well, what I've seen mostly is resistance, actually. <laughs> People don't want to believe in this, in the science. And that's, and that's not just about gaming disorder. Uh, that's, you know, there's a whole big anti-science movement in the U.S. for the past 10, 20 years, and we see it with global mm-hmm. warming, and we see it with vaccines, and we see it with you know, media violence, uh, and we see it with uh, gaming disorder. So that's the main thing I've seen is as the science gets stronger and stronger, people want to disbelieve it more and more, even though they really should not be doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so the, as the science has gotten stronger, however, the, uh, the major health care organizations uh, are taking mm-hmm. it more, more seriously. In uh, 2013, the American Psychiatric Association, uh, which is the group that releases what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM, which is kind of the American Bible for how mental health disorders get diagnosed. They included internet gaming disorder in the appendix. And they put things in the appendix when the early science okay. looks strong. Still, there are too many unanswered questions to be able to uh, feel fully confident that it deserves to be its own uh, diagnosis rather than just part of something Mm -hmm. else, such as depression. And so that spurred a lot of research, uh, because then once it got, uh, got in there, then people say, okay, well, there are a lot of unanswered questions, let's start answering them. And then over the next... uh, six years, lots of research came out, and the result of that has been that uh, the World Health Organization, which has its own Bible uh, of mental health and other diseases called the International Classification of Diseases, ICD, in their most recent updates to the ICD uh, last year, they included gaming disorder Mm -hmm. as a bona fide mental health disorder. So we're coming up to... uh, starting to form committees to look at things for an update to the DSM in the U.S. And so this is now going to start being, again, something that we look at with a very intense scrutiny, how, how strong are the data out there, how good are the studies, and do we know enough to include it in the DSM when DSM-6 comes out in a few years. So that's kind of what the trajectory has been. But... Basically, we have found that the more people who study it, uh, although certainly there are different opinions about whether it's part of something else or whether uh, you know, gaming disorder is the same thing as internet addiction or whether those are different just manifestations of the same thing, those debates are still uh, underway. But the data are pretty clear that a substantial minority of people who game can become addicted to them. And when they do, it's not just something that's a fad that they 
easily get out of on their own, they probably need help. So I have a question. I, I This is so fascinating over the history of how this is is coming down. And I, I want to also mention that that you are on one of these committees, correct? For I'm on a World Health Organization committee on how we should uh, create the screening tools for, uh, for clinicians. And I am on the committee that will likely become <laughs> the committee to inform uh, the American Psychiatric Association uh, DSM-5 text revision and DSM-6 revisions. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. So if, if you ever need anybody to come talk to uh, a committee, just call me. I will I will come and I will tell them what it looks like on the, the boots on the ground in a normal living room. I don't know what else you need to know, <laughs> but I know there's a lot of science around it and we have to pay such close attention to that. But I also know that in our audience, even today listening, there's a lot of parents out there that are getting confused about what they read and then about what they're actually seeing happening, you know, in the meltdown on their kitchen floor when they take Fortnite away from their 11 year old. It's important to recognize that the types of debates that happen in these academic and scientific circles are exactly the types of things that pointy headed academics like myself love to argue about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's a really different thing from, you know, the parents, what the parents are dealing with in their homes, that they should not be distracted by the, the nitpicky detailed arguments. Do we call mm-hmm. it an addiction? Do we call it a disorder? Do we call right. it pathological? Do we call, I mean, we love to argue over those kinds of yes. stupid, almost meaningless things. Yeah. Uh, and you nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm always in these and I'm always a, offended by these arguments because they're irrelevant for most part, certainly to the people who need clear information most. And so don't allow yourself to be distracted by anyone who says, Oh, we don't even know what we're talking about. We don't even know how to name it. That, at a technical <laughs> level, maybe that's accurate, although I disagree, but it's irrelevant. Yes. You know, whether what we call it doesn't matter. You know, kids are having problems and we need to get them help. Yes. And I tell parents the same exact thing all the time, that if you feel like your child has a growing dependency problem with their video game or their screen, then that is the day that you've got to start doing something about it. And we're not going to worry like I worried back when my son was going through this. Um, I was ridiculed, I guess, is a word that I can um, feel comfortable using about calling it an addiction because I people were saying, well, you know, it can't be an addiction. You're overreacting. This is whatever. But I knew something dreadfully was wrong in my house. And so, um, but I love that you, that there are people like you out there that are absolutely doing the research and getting to the bottom line of the science behind it because it, it's completely necessary and we have to do it. So explain to our audience why greens, you know, cause this dependency or just cause these problems, whatever word we want to use. Sure. Um, give us some, some of your thoughts from all your research. I mean, we kind of know why from a lay perspective, but tell us from your 
side of things and just from your um, research, why? There are game features that do make it more likely to interact with human psychology in a way that becomes more of a problem. Uh, the, the, the primary one is intermittent reinforcement. You know, we all you know, know in our own experience and also from about 70, 80 years of high quality psychological research that the best way to get humans to keep doing something is to uh, put them on what's called keeping track on your lucky psychological jargon scorecard, uh, you know, variable reinforcement schedule. What is this? Well, let's, let's compare it to its opposite. If I ask you, Melanie, to stand up and sit down and every, you know, and if you do, I'll give you a dollar. Mm-hmm. I bet you'd do it, right? Yeah. Yes. And I bet you'd keep doing it. You stand up, you sit down, I hand you a dollar. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do next? You're going to stand up and sit down, right? I hand yep. you another dollar. You're going to do this. And at some point, I say I run out of dollars. And how long are you going to continue standing up and sitting down? You, you, you won't, right? You'll figure out pretty darn quickly, game over, and you're going to, why would you keep doing this, right? Right, right. But if I tell you, at some random interval, after you've stood up and sat down enough times, I'll give you a dollar. And the first time you stand up and sit down three times, I'll give you a dollar. And the next time it's 12 times. And the next mm-hmm. time it's mm-hmm. the first time. And then it's you know, 28 times. And then at some point, I stop paying. How long are you going to keep doing it? You're going to go a long time mm-hmm. because sure. you weren't expecting to get reinforced every single time. And so, so the best way to keep people uh, persevering in a behavior is to reinforce them at variable intervals. And this is exactly the main mechanism that games use. Right. Some use it even very strategically, like loot boxes, uh, yeah. where might get a really great reward or you might get just a little reward or no reward, but you can't know. And so that's what keeps you wanting to continue. That is a very basic part of human learning uh, psychology. But that's true about almost all games, um, although some use it much more strategically (laughs) than others. That's true of social media too, right? Social media too. Exactly. You scroll through and a lot of the things you see you don't care about or you, some of them even annoy you. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you get one that you love, right? And right. that makes you want to keep going. Um, so, yeah, there are things about the way media are designed that interact with human psychology that make us want to keep doing them. But I don't think really the issue is, you know, that's just a problem with games. Although I've heard from my friends within the industry that some game companies hire psychologists to actually tweak those reinforcement schedules to make them maximally (laughs) uh, beneficial for keeping people playing and keeping people spending. Uh, And I think there's an ethical dilemma there uh, I'd have a hard time with. Let me just interrupt you real quick when you're talking about the the ethical dilemma in a a sense, um, because when we're talking about kids versus adults, I feel like it's a little bit of a different discussion. You know, when you're an adult, you want to go buy a lottery ticket, for example, or you want to go gamble or play a video game and whatever. That's kind of up to you. It it does feel different when it's a younger brain that we're exposing this to. And I'm not 
saying that we need to go shut down the video game companies. That's not at all anything I'm interested in talking about. I'm just interested in the variable rewards and the random intervals. How does that play out different in a kid brain versus an adult brain? Or we can just focus on that for a minute. Well, it plays out in very important ways. And this is not my main area of expertise, but... Mm-hmm. The teen brain in particular is, has a few interesting characteristics. Uh, one is that it becomes hypersensitive to dopamine, actually. And so a, it, and it craves it more. Mm. At the same time, the teen brain is less attuned to risk. This is why teens do a lot of crazy things. <laughs> because their brain really is focused on uh, to a much greater extent than it is even as a young child or as an adult on what what might be exciting, what might mm. uh, and and you could imagine within an evolutionary context that's really useful, right? Kids are now getting to the age where they can start figuring out what they're good at, what uh, what they want to learn. What excites them, you know, in terms of careers or in terms of you know, skills, uh, mm-hmm. uh, hunting, uh, you know, whatever it is, that that wish for a little bit of rush, yeah, really helps propel them into adulthood. Yeah, they have to. Right? They have to take risk, otherwise they would not leave our basement, right? Right. So they, they they're insensitive to risk and they're hypersensitive to reward, and that's just a function of brain chemistry during the teen years. The problem is games hijack that system that used to get them out of the house (laughs) Mm -hmm. to go try things. Mm -hmm. And now it's giving them all of that excitement without actually teaching them a skill that's, that's really going to be useful for their careers. Yeah. And, and because they're insensitive to risk, they don't see how they're harming their lives by uh, you know, stopping uh, being interested in school, stopping uh, you know, being interested in other sports or clubs or you know, mm-hmm. hobbies or activities or even giving up friends. Mm-hmm. And so they can't understand. And honestly, they can't. You can tell it to them. They're not going to understand it. <laughs> oh, really? Their brain, their brain cannot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they can't understand the risks. This is why you know, teenagers will become addicted to all sorts of things, not just games. This is why mm-hmm. teenagers you know, get killed driving too fast with their lights off on a country lane. You know, they, yeah. Because they're seeking that rush and they can't understand the risks. Yeah, that really sums it up right there. When you yeah. when you just said that they can't understand that, mom and dad out there, if you're listening, it's not you. It's not you're not using the wrong words, and and you're not um, using the wrong conversations. It they just don't work. Um, we have to have yeah. the words, and we have to have the conversations, but they really just can't understand it right now. It's going to get better. It's just right now their brain isn't fully connected. Well, it is connected. It's connected in a way that used to be really useful for the species. It used to drive them out of their home so that they would go try 
hunting. So they would mm-hmm. go try, <laughs> yes. go to the next village to find a girl they could mate with. Yeah. Uh, with you know, I mean, it used to be really useful for the species. So it's not that the brain isn't working; it's working exactly as uh, right. it, it helps the species. The problem is the environment has changed so much that now it's hijacked. The same way that uh, seeking sugar used to be a way of making sure we got enough nutrition, mm-hmm. right? When because we would uh, we would start looking for ripe fruits. Mm-hmm. And now that sugar's been separated from the fruit, it's actually killing us. We have yeah. not lost our evolutionary desire for sugar. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is we've changed the environment sugar exists in. Yeah, it's now you know purified and you know and fed to us with with no nutrition. So it's the same way that basically we've changed the environment to stop being uh, nutritious for kids, but it still feeds all of those. Uh, the way the brain is designed to look for it. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the, and I'm sure you would agree that the frontal cortex, as that gets more developed over time, then you get a little more breaks. You get, you, you know, you get yeah. more judgment. And I remember when Adam turned 26 and he came in the kitchen, it was literally on his 26th birthday. He walked into the kitchen and he looked at me and he said, mom, I just, I've been meaning to tell you, you are getting smarter. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, honey, you just turned 26 and actually you're getting a little more aware of, (laughs) of my um, parenting. Um, But I thought that was so classic because as then you get into your mid twenties, things start to look a little bit different. And, And he even says, even today when he was in the army and he used to jump out of airplanes with parachutes and, he today he can't imagine that he did that. He's I, I can't believe I used to do that. I'm like I know. Well, that, and that's why the army recruits 18 year olds because <laughs> they don't understand risk and they love the rush. Yes. Uh, willing- <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, you're exactly right. You know, parents, it isn't you. Uh, it isn't you're using the wrong words. I, I exactly agree with you. And this is why you know parents need to exert control. Just uh, and if that's not the right word, they mm-hmm. need to exert, you know, they need to have the guardrails. They need guardrails and they need guidance. And, and we talk about right. parents being a coach, Doug. So we, they need, they need, uh, kids need some coaching. They need to know yeah. what to do next. And they can't always use it. I mean, that's the other thing about the, this, the teenage brain. Uh, it's, you know, it's all gas and no brakes. Uh, and mm-hmm. you can say, push the brake pedal. That's fine. But there's no fluid in that. <laughs> that yeah. So it's not going to work yet. So how does that apply then to when a kid, a teenager gets stuck on his video game? So, you know, I think you just answered it. He's going to keep going because of these reward systems in the game married to this underdeveloped system. Or as you're saying, no, it's very developed. It's what he's designed to crave is this type of a rush. So what is the solution at the end of the day? The solution is to try to keep things in balance is mm-hmm. my, my solution. Now, I'm not a big proponent of saying going cold Turkey and never playing games again. But there just said, there are a lot of people, especially clinicians who disagree with me about this. And mm-hmm. No, that is really the only way you're going to be able to do it. And I think maybe for some people that really is going to be true. Um, well, do you think the cold turkey thing for a season is good? I mean, we 
oh, we yeah. see, we so, definitely yeah. see su- success with um, taking a couple years off. Even let your kid get back into sports. Let them develop first some other interests before we're going to allow this whole door to be opened again. I don't have a problem. With it, I guess, uh, and I think it, it's really you know, likely to be effective. But I just don't know that it's always the most practical approach for every family. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a clinician, so don't listen to my opinions about this stuff. <laughs> they really are just opinions. Uh, right. But again, my feeling is it is about balance. And so, you know, and, and you, you say this uh, all the time, it's, you know, what are the warning signs when the kid gives up that balance, when they start not caring about their old friends, when they stop having other things they like doing uh, as much as gaming that now it's out of balance. And so how do you put that balance back in? I think every family is going to have a somewhat different answer to that. So I can't mm-hmm. give one size fits all answer. Mm-hmm. And but taking the time to figure out how to give them other things that they care about, you know, that might take uh, a year off or, or whatever it is. Let me give you one more framework for thinking about this. One of the... Um, best scientifically studied and verified theories of intrinsic motivation is called self-determination theory. It says that humans have an ABC of human needs. The A is autonomy. We want to feel like we're in control of what we're doing. The B is belongingness. We want to feel like we're connected to other people. And the C is competence. We want to feel like we're good at what we do. And so if your job gives you all three of those, you have some uh, autonomy over how you do things, that you get to connect with other people uh, during your workday, and uh, you're competent at it, you love your job. And if your job doesn't give you those things, uh, you're stuck in a cubicle, you're just told what to do, uh, you have can't interact with others, and your boss tells you you're you're on the edge of getting fired. You hate your job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really is kind of that simple. The more of these we get, needs we get met, the more we are intrinsically motivated to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Games are fantastic. At yeah. all three First of all, you're holding a controller. You are in control. <laughs> uh, if you are, uh, you know, you can get your relatedness need met in several ways. You can talk sure. to other friends about gaming. You can uh, interact with them online about it. You can play in the same room as other people. Or uh, if you're online playing World of Warcraft, you can play with 11 million of your closest friends all at once. Yeah, and they make and they make you feel like you belong. Like you have to be there. If you're not there, we're not going to win our our yep. game. So you 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 have a very specific. Um, belonging to that group for your skill. And that's one of the uh, pulls uh, that these games use, you know, kind of to, uh, this is why these online socially connected games may actually be, to use your word, more addictive because Mm -hmm. they're better at that. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) so that's one more game feature that that has uh, additional lures that you've got the social cost when you log off. No longer with your friends, your game continues without you, uh, and so there's a fear of missing out and things like that. So that's another aspect of you know, game design that does enter into uh, kids having a problem with it. Mm-hmm. But then, 
a well-designed game also trains you to be competent. It starts mm. at a low level and it teaches you the skills. And so you start feeling better and better about yourself by playing more and more uh, and putting in the practice. Now, right. that's not least that, you know, the fact that games are fantastic at all three of these uh, basic human needs is not a problem. The problem becomes when you're not getting those needs met elsewhere. Yes. And so if kids aren't, you know, they don't have a group of friends they feel close to in the real world, if they uh, aren't doing well in school, if they don't have other ways to feel and control you know, what they're doing, then it's easy, you can see, for it to become out of balance. And so I, I recognize this. I wish I could say it was my idea. Go ahead. <laughs> it's so smart. <laughs> uh, but back in about 2006, I was working in Singapore, uh, and they uh, have a, a non-governmental agency called Touch uh, Community Services, which is basically a social work service. And back then, there was uh, a counselor who was actually a, had been an engineer for Hewlett Packard um, named Young uh, Chern Po. And he recognized that this was a great model for understanding what he was seeing with gaming addiction. Hmm. Um, and so what they did is they built a system where when parents started calling up and saying, I think my kid's got a problem. They did several things. First of all, they brought the parents in and trained them how to play the games. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, so that parents can start understanding why the mm -hmm. kid likes it, right? That's yeah. a, it's already, if the parents are sitting there and say, I don't get it, well, then you have no way of communicating with your child sure. about it, right? So first of all, they trained the parents in, here's how to play, uh, so that you can understand why this is fun. Then they figured out which of these three needs was the main one that kids were, were getting satisfied through games. And then they trained the kid in another way to get that. Mm. So if it was about uh, relation, you know, getting their relational needs met, I forget all the specifics, so I sure. may be a bit inaccurate here, but they would put them on a, a basketball team. Yeah. If it was about uh, competence, they took them out and taught them how to fish. Mm. Uh, if it was you know, about autonomy, I forget what the specifics were, sure. but they had a plan for training the kid in how to get that need met in the real world in some other way. Yes. And only after that did they start taking the games away. Because if you just take the games away without filling the hole, the hole mm -hmm. still exists mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you've made it bigger. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's that you have to replace it. And this is what we tell parents all the time when we have our challenge, even you're, you got to do some prep work, even for a week, if you're going to remove this for a week, you're going to do some prep and you're going to do um, these life skills, you're going to spend time together as a family, you're going to let your kid pick out a new art thing they want to do, you're, you're going to um, teach them how to do, you know, how to cook, you're going to do something to, it's very interesting how you, you've hit all these three things. So you have to replace it. Otherwise you have a kid that's having a real meltdown, you know, cause like you said, they have the, the big void there. Right. And, and you know, just doing that is not going to magically get rid of meltdowns, but, <laughs> right. but the point is we are trying to train 
kids to be more well-rounded humans, you know, more resilient humans, give them other ways of getting their needs met than just one. Uh, because no matter what that one is, sometimes it's not going to be available. No matter what it is, uh, if you've only got one way <laughs> of uh, getting your needs met, you're going to have serious problems at some point in the future. That, and that's where we see this imbalance. To your point, you're talking about you, you know, you're saying, well, it's not really the game. It's the lack maybe of meeting these things in real life, these needs. Because it's harder. <laughs> it's much harder. It's, it's much harder. So that's the kick. That, that's the whole problem. You just nailed the whole problem. <laughs> Is that it's so much harder it, 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 to do this stuff in real life. The game. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes say this is, you know, the, what's the core of this issue is don't feed the bears. Why don't, why should you not feed the bears? You go to a public park and it says, don't feed the bears. Why? It's not because they're going to attack you. It's because once bears realize that they can get food without doing anything, <laughs> just knock over a trash can or go up to where all the people are and they'll give it to you they lose their skills of how to hunt and forage. Yes. It kills them because they get, because they're not stupid. If they can get their food easily, <laughs> why wouldn't you? That, yeah, that's true. And that's the same thing here. If you can get your needs met uh, for competence easily, why wouldn't kids aren't stupid? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. This is, this is actually smart again from an evolutionary perspective, but once we you know made you know made it so simple for them, then they don't build the skills they need in the real world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, you nailed it again. Okay, you keep nailing. Maybe this is why you do so much research and you're so smart. Okay, so don't feed the bears. That's brilliant. No, I'm smart because I do the research and it shows me the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You read the it's, answers. And <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, you know, I started with questions and I still have some. Yeah. But a lot of those initial questions have been answered pretty well to my satisfaction. And we now know a lot of the answers to this. And so right. it sounds smart as if I know something, but it's not because I, you know, I'm smarter than anyone else. It's because... I know where to look and how to get some right. answers and I have the resources to be able to do it in the way most people do. That's right. Well, thank you. And, and, and for the, again, the parents out there and myself included, this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in because our, you know, we are feeding the bears we're feeding them. So they're not going mm -hmm. out and they're not learning how to do all these life skills. And then we turn around and we're like, why didn't you learn how to do these things? Well, honestly, I don't want to point fingers, but it really is our responsibility even with my oldest son, I didn't know this. I didn't understand how um, exciting those games were going to be to the point where it was taking him away from learning the life skills that he needed, the discipline that he needed to sit in a college lecture class instead of being lured away to just stay in his room and play his game because I wasn't there setting the kitchen timer. So there were these big holes when he went out to go into the real world. And like, if he had been a bear, he probably wouldn't have made it. Right. Um, because he's looking for the hand for the handout, the quick, easy fix for all this. And that's a really good way 
to understand it and to explain it. And so the way we have to fix it is to make real life, you know, fun again, I guess. I mean, and I think real life is way more fun than a video game, by the way. And I think every boy out there knows and every girl who's playing knows that real life is more fun and real life is better. It just takes more work. It takes grit. And it's, it has a variable reinforcement schedule too. Yes. The problem is it's a much longer lag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you think about you know, learning to play a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's really fun after five years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a great point. I, you know, I have my, my two 16 year olds, they play the violin. And yeah, after five years, I would say, is when we got the first glimmer of the dopamine hit when they got their song. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I'll never forget Andrew running out of the teacher's class, running to the car, so excited. I didn't know what had happened. And he was like, mom, I got it. I finally got it. And you know, that didn't take three minutes like it does in a video game. It took a exactly. lot longer. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of the things we've we've taken away from kids and you know, I don't like blaming parents either. I think every parent wants what's best for their kid. Every parent does their best for their kid. The problem is that parents, their intuitions are often not accurate. Mm -hmm. And it takes, you know, researchers like me to kind of look at the the overall pattern to try to, to understand that. And so we've been training them from the time they were little kids in all the wrong things. Uh, so, you know, back when we used to be able to go to restaurants, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you'd see a family with the young kids, say two or three, and the kids, after a while, stops having fun being at the restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. And it starts fussing. Mm-hmm. And now the parents are anxious because all the other, you know, the kids going to start melting down and then all the other diners are going to hate them, right? Uh, so what do the parents do? They hand them a phone, right? Yes. Or a tablet. Yes. And the kid quiets down and is happy. And the parents uh, now get to eat their meal in, in peace and without you know, all that stress. And so mm-hmm. from the parent's point of view, it's a win-win. Sure. Kid's happy, parent's happy. The truth of the matter is it's a lose-lose. Yeah. Because what you've now trained both sets, the parents and the children, in is that kids' negative emotions are something to be gotten away from. Mm. rather than to be worked with, rather mm. than to be allowed. And so uh, you know, the kids never learn how to handle their own emotions. And the, you know, the thing my uh, 20-year-old, the worst swear word you can call something is it's boring, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. she cannot handle sure. not having constant stimulation mm-hmm. because she's been so trained in that's <laughs> that's needed that the real world you know allowing things to just happen at the speed of the real world is is agonizing to her in some way yeah. it's uh, that instant gratification and that's what parents get too when they hand their phone to the exactly. four-year-old in the restaurant they're they're almost in a video game uh, mindset <laughs> because yeah, they're, they're they're playing the game they're given the kid the phone and they get a reward which is quiet you know, peaceful right. time to talk while we're eating. So it's, we're all driven by these rewards. And that's why I think we've got to put the game aside 
so we can focus on these rewards that we value in our, in our family. And, you know, um, I'm not saying that necessarily parents are to blame and I don't like to use those words and make parents feel bad. However, I will say that parents are the best solution or the best way for the kids to get out of it. And so talk in our last few minutes here, I really want you to unpack your thoughts around um, the power that parents have. And and, and what does research even say about that? Because I think it does speak to that. You, yeah, you, uh, you you designed this very nicely to give me the question I love the most to oh. talk about my favorite study. So oh, <laughs> thank you for that. Here you go. I didn't know that. Great. <laughs> so we did a study with over 1,400 families of third through fifth graders uh, in two different states. Mm-hmm. We talked to the kids. We talked to their parents. We talked to kids' teachers. We talked to the school nurses. We got a lot of information about these families, and we measured them uh, multiple times over a year. And we found that looking at the beginning of a school year, for example, some families set more limits on amount and content of children's screen media. Uh, They have more rules about it. um, And if they set those limits, it does turn out that you know, those kids do have lower screen time and they consume less violent media. Mm-hmm. That already is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So having rules or setting some limits actually works. Mm-hmm. Uh, more interesting thing, though, is that when we follow these kids out to the end of the school year, those kids whose families set limits on amount of content of screen media, they're getting more sleep which in turn relates to lower weight gain. So they're at less risk for obesity, which is a terrible problem in this, uh, in this mm-hmm. country these days. Mm-hmm. Those kids are also getting better grades in school. Those kids are more pro-social in their behaviors as measured by teachers, which is remarkable because the teachers don't know what family rules for media are at home, but they see the behaviors in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And they are less aggressive, again, as rated by teachers. Now, there are two things that fascinate me about this. The first is that those aren't the same type of outcome variable, right? Uh, that is, uh, we've got physical health, we've got school performance, and we've got social wellness. Those three different types or categories of outcome variables don't usually co-occur like this. Hmm. But this one simple thing of setting limits on amount and content of children's screen media influences all of them. So wow. it is a ripple effect that extends out wide across time. But the more interesting thing to me is that no parent will ever know they're having this effect because you're never going to know that your child gained less weight than he would have or is getting better grades than she would have gotten or is more pro-social than he would have been. You only know what your kid is. And this is why parents feel powerless because they can't see the effect they're having. All they can see for themselves is the fight over the rules, but they're having a huge effect. Parents are in a much more powerful position than they realize or can realize. Take someone like me who looks at it from the outside to be able to see that. Because from within, you just see what your kid is doing and you see how much the kid fights you about it. I'm here to tell you, it's worth having the fight. (laughs) (laughs) It is worth having those rules because it protects, it's a powerful protective factor across a wide range of health and wellness indicators. And in other studies, we've also found 
that having these rules can influence a risk of game uh, addiction symptoms, uh, as well as if you put allow media in the bedroom, that's like a turbocharger for all the problems. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all the problems still can happen, but they happen much <laughs> faster at a much greater rate. So taking media out of children's bedrooms is another very simple, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, because your kid's going to fight you, mm-hmm. uh, but a very simple thing that actually is, again, a powerful protective factor for kids development. Wow, I love, I love what you're um, pointing out here about the power of parents and how these simple things they can do change the the outcome so greatly. It's not just a little tweak that you get a little tweak back. It's a little tweak up front and then you, you just get this huge benefit down the road. And, but you're never going to know it. You're never yeah. going to know it was true to these rules. So that's, you just gotta, gotta trust that parenting matters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, and I know what you said a few minutes ago about some of their intuition is wrong about who's to blame, but their intuition is a parent um, knowing that something isn't right with their kid is very strong. And I think yes. that's a, that's a huge protective factor when parents act on, um, not, not, you know, when they act on these intuitions and they do something about it and instead of just saying, well, culture says this, or my friends say this, or, you know, um, I don't know the school. And how can says, we tell the difference? Yeah. I think, I think that one, one way of thinking about how we can tell the difference is, are you doing it to make yourself more comfortable or are you doing it because it's what's in your kid's best interest? Mm-hmm. So my younger daughter hated school and I would, you know, for, try to, wouldn't always do it, but, you know, I would try to force her to do homework. I would try to, you know, take away her, her media use. I would, you know, all these things to try to get her to do, not because it made me, oh, I hated it right? Mm-hmm. It made our lives miserable. <laughs> it did not make me more comfortable, mm-hmm. but it was very specifically to try to help her later outcomes. That family in the restaurant that we talked about is trying to make themselves feel, and, and they're trying to make their kid feel more comfortable too. It's not just one or the other, but if you're doing things in a way that kind of makes you feel better about it, then yeah. you might want to question <laughs> whether it's really right. the best thing. You know, or, or think at least, you know, what is the long-term outcome of this? Yeah. And it's the pay now, pay later mentality that I have now with my younger kids that I didn't quite understand with my older ones. Um, I, it was just, I didn't know what I didn't know. And a lot of parents out there today are in that same boat where they don't know what they don't know. They don't know they're supposed to know (laughs) these things. And that's what we're trying to do is to just raise awareness and you have just done fabulous job of doing that today with us. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've even learned so much and I, I'm in my head's in this all the time and I read so much and I just appreciate the way that you broke down, um, the, um, self-determination theory. I think that in itself is just so valuable to understand that our kids need to be, uh, autonomous. They need to belong. They need to be competent. And as, a parent, we have to start over each day and figure out ways um, to help them reach those goals. And the more they're reaching those goals in real life, the less issues I think you're going to have in the game, you know, with the game and, and with the other 
um, screens that they're on, you know, we have to constantly be pulling it, pulling them back toward healthy, you know, balance in real life. Um, but it's really important to have the research and the science behind it. And what you're doing is just, just this huge work to create the foundation for all these things to be discovered. And, um, without the research, we're just all over the place. So, um, it's so critical. Thank you so much for being here. I want to ask if you have, um, just one final, I know I'm really going on a limb here because I have no idea what you're going to (laughs) say. Um, but what is your one final word of advice for parents who have young kids who are just starting to get, you know, worried about this trade that they're making, um, that they're constantly wanting to be on their games instead of being in real life. So what, what's the final word of advice, I guess, from where you sit? Especially for parents of younger kids, I guess it would be, don't be afraid that being strict is going to make your kid an outcast. Wow. There's pretty much nothing you can do (laughs) that will turn your child into a freak. You can imagine I'm very, very strict, (laughs) uh, right? You know, and, and so my daughter was not allowed to watch anything that, was not uh, age appropriate and didn't play basically any video games except a couple educational ones. And that, you know, I was, I said, you know, to my wife very directly, I don't care if I turn her into a freak, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this, you know, and it turns out she didn't turn out to be a freak because amazing. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because she, you know, she was a, three or four when Lord of the Rings came out, right? You can imagine how I did not let her watch that movie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I love those movies, but clearly not for kids. And yet we're walking through Game Art one day and she's looking at all the t-shirts and merchandise and she says, that one's Frodo and that one's Samwise and that one's, you know, mm-hmm. how the hell does she know this? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but there's no way to get away from the culture. So it's not like you're even if you keep your kids from it, they're going to not be able right. to talk. They'll still be able to talk to yes. the other kids about it because yes. there's no way not to. So right. they may not get to play the same games, but that doesn't mean that's going to ruin their friendships. So yes. feel free, you know, be strict uh, and kind. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about uh, strictness with warmth. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is again focused on what is in their long term benefit, not in what makes you more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And that's all based on research, my friends. Um, plus, of course, all the, the wisdom that Doug has gathered through doing all the research and not only reading everything, but doing it himself. And um, this firm but loving parenting style is definitely the winner. And we absolutely need to think about this every day. Doug, thank you so much for sharing with us. We are so honored to have you on and we've learned so much. Thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, absolutely. And you are a big part of why we're able to produce the stuff we're producing. It's all these layers of learning over time. And I'm hoping that I can continue to break this down for families in a way where they don't have to spend eight years like I did (laughs) to learn it where they can learn it a lot quicker. So thank you so much for being part of that. Thank you. 
I hope you all enjoyed listening today. Please share this podcast with your friends and go over to our Screen Strong Challenge and you can do the detox. It's only seven days to get you started. ScreenStrong.com is our website where you can find that information. And we also have our Screen Strong Families Facebook group. It's a private group and we help families just like you navigate their way around the best solutions to get their kids back and get them re-engaged in the real world and in your families. Remember that we have your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd and stay strong. Stay strong.